Bill, my man, what is going on? What's going on, Rod? It's good to, good to see you, good to talk to you, and it's awesome to be, uh, to be a part of your show. Well, thank you, sir. I've, I've really been looking forward to this one. As, as you and I both know, uh, Billy Mazur and I, you know, I had him and Joe on from Arcadia a few weeks ago. Uh, and, and man, and then our little conversation we got to have, I've just gotten super fired up because, you know, the one thing that I think not only veterans, but first responders are, are really struggling with is, you know, what, what do the programs actually look like? You know, sure. We know we have, everybody knows they got issues. Everybody knows they're battling traumatic brain injury. Everybody knows they're dealing with some alcoholism or pills or whatever. Everybody knows, but man, what the hell do we do about it? Right? Yeah, no, that's, that's an excellent point. I got to tell you, I think it's, I think it's confusing for first responders uh, as well as, you know, even probably less so for military guys if they're active duty, but, you know, certainly for the first responders who were hurting long before all of the current uh, stuff that's going on in this world with COVID and, you know, some of the, some of the social revolution. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So it's, you know, I think it's hard enough for a first responder to raise their hand and say, Hey, I got an issue, but then it's like, well, what do you do with it? Um, A lot of departments out there, it can be, it can be very, very uh, daunting to sort of, you know, navigate that. In, in my experience, we've had, so, you know, I'm the director of the Red, White, and Blue program here. As you know, it's here at Tucson. We've had a lot of people that have come into treatment uh, for my program and have been at other treatment facilities. But the problem is, even if they get the treatment, a lot of the treatment centers out there can be cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. For example, with the alcohol, yeah, it's easy to, you know, get into the 12 steps. That's, that's an awesome program. But what we find is that the underlying trauma really is not being addressed as it should be. So yeah, it's definitely. That's the interesting fact, right? Is that any, any, any time you really begin to understand how trauma affects the human body, the human brain, you know, the human psyche, you start to realize, man, this stuff lingers and it, and it, and it, and over time it, it manifests itself in certain uh, behavioral traits or or certain ways of thinking that uh, really are about a, a protective mechanism to try and really you know not have to expose these very difficult things that have happened to them in their past or whatever I mean you know in particular like I, I went into the military because I was coming out of four years of substantial depression in college right I, I didn't achieve my dream that I wanted I didn't know how to handle it I turned to alcohol and drugs of the times and, and, and didn't know what I was experiencing, you know, that it was, it was started out as anxiety, moved into full depression. And then I tried to mask it with all these other things. And, you know, it wasn't until I got into the service over a period of time where I started to recognize, Whoa, this, this is some heavy stuff, man. Is that really where you began to start to acknowledge the significance of, uh, prior trauma in people's lives is when you were a PA in, in the service? Yeah, when, when I was still active duty, uh, you know, and especially after 9-11, you know, some, sometimes me and my buddies, we kind of joke around like, what did we ever do before 9-11? <laughs> I mean, you know, we went to sea and, you know, I, for example, I used to be on submarines and oh. sea and, but man, I got to, after 9-11, the military has not stopped. 
So yeah, as a PA, I definitely, I got to see a lot of, you know, I stationed a lot with the Marines. I got to go to Iraq in 2004. Wow. Uh, I was the, with a surgical company there and, uh, you know, what saw was that physical like? That, that was intense. You know, that was, that was probably the, the toughest seven months of my life. And if you ever, you know, you remember the, the beginning of the old TV show MASH where all the nurses are running towards the helicopter, that, that's, that was us. Wow. So we always, we were always on edge, you know, if we weren't getting rocket attacks or mortar attacks, you know, we would try to sleep, but you'd kind of sleep with one eye open. And it was just, when you talk about trauma, you really do, people develop this, this hypervigilance, as we call it. It's just kind of like you're always, Flipped you know, on response but you know in normal situations we kind of ramp down and normalize but it's hard to do that in a, in a combat situation so where did I, you I go I'm ahead. sorry go ahead I'm sorry no I was if you were going to ask where I, where I was I was at a I was at a, a base in Iraq called Al-Assad mm -hmm. and you know that certainly uh, it wasn't as hairy as Fallujah which was you know uh, not too far away but we we would get sporadic you know attacks and uh, we would have to basically take care of wounded, you know, wounded Marines and, you know, fly with them to Baghdad sometimes or, you know, to Balad. So. Well, I, I always imagine, you know, and, and this is something that I, I didn't expect until all of a sudden now I'm, I'm, I'm in the situation. I'm, I'm having to treat my own guys who've been shot and the, what that process look begins and actually looks like and feels like and the intensity of it. And, Oh my God, we're, we're not made of Teflon. We're, we, we actually are vulnerable to these, you know, projectiles moving at 3,200 feet or 3,700 feet per second. And blasts really have a, a profound effect on our brains and our skin and everything else. And you, and what I remember is just, man, once we, cause it had been so long since we'd been com in combat, you really started to see this sensation of, oh man, this is real stuff. And, yeah. and, we, and, and, I, and, I, and you started seeing it within the guys, like your friends who were, you know, they do one and then all of a sudden they do another and then they do another. So what, when did you first really start to recognize, wow, um, we have some issues going on with, with this sustained level of combat? I I think when I got back from Iraq, I, I went back to uh, San Diego, you know, I was stationed at Balboa there, the, the Naval Hospital, and actually worked at the clinic out there at uh, Coronado for a little while too, which I really liked. But you know, I can tell you my experience, when, I, when you're actually in it, or like when I was in it and my buddies, it's not like you're walking around saying, oh my God, I think I'm, you know, getting post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Suck it up. You got to keep rolling, right? So when I got back, the thing that struck me is, like I had a hard time going to the grocery store without wanting to rip somebody's head off, right? Like somebody innocuously bumps into me with their heart, the stimuli, you know, the noise, the lights and all that stuff. And so you, you talked earlier about, you know, kind of the symptoms. I mean, that was me. I mean, one of the hallmarks of, you know, PTS or, you know, post-traumatic stress is it can be irritability, the hypervigilance, you know, some people have nightmares, but I, I turned to alcohol and I got to tell you, uh, I was, I was using alcohol before that, to be honest with you, but my alcohol use really, really ramped up just to kind of quiet down the, the squirrels in my head, so to speak. Wow. Just, it took me a while to, to, to really adjust to that. And, uh, yeah, so most people, you know, we have a lot of people that come into my program that haven't even necessarily had 
combat experience, but they think because they grew up in a horrific environment that they can't have post-traumatic stress, right? Because the military has done a great job at advertising, you know, what PTSD is, but in reality, it's far more common in, in everyday life, you know? So substance use, as you pointed out, uh, certainly is one of the things, but people get depressed and anxious. Some people have chronic pain, uh, self-destructive behaviors, you know, dangerous, you know, engaging in dangerous behaviors. I've known a couple guys that went and got really fast motorcycles and, you know, really, they said if they were in a crash, they wouldn't, they wouldn't really, uh, didn't bother them, you know? So right here, right here, emotional I'm, overwhelm. Yeah. I'm that so, guy. As soon as I got out and I moved back to Florida, man, I'm, I'm this 31 year old former Navy SEAL that went from going, you know, a thousand miles an hour to, to, you know, now all of a sudden I, I've got no mission. I've got no structure. I've got no group of friends. And yeah. man, I'd get, I'd get, go to a bar. I'd drink 20 shots of tequila. I'd get on my motorcycle and I'd drive a hundred miles an hour on I-95 with no shirt on and sunglasses. Wow. And, and had the expectation that, you know, if I hit something, who cares? Then I don't have to deal with the pain anymore. Right. Yeah. And well, one of the things, if you're one of the, the, some people just don't have, even if somebody has the insight, like, okay, I'm drinking too much or, you know, I'm kind of spiraling. It really takes an incredible amount of courage for somebody to raise their hand and, uh, and to ask for help, you know, in, in the military, it's, uh, it's hard, you know, especially if it's going to, you know, this, if you, if you raise your hand, you say you're having problems and then it turns out you miss a deployment, man, there's no greater sin in the, in the, the military than, you know, being perceived as a, you know, as, as a weakling or whatever, because, you know, you did the right thing. So. And it's not just, and it's not just the military either. I mean, I just no, right, had, right, right. I just had, you know, Brad on who's, who's a graduate of, of Sierra Tucson yep. and, you know, I, I've talked to Billy about it, man. And, and, law enforcement man they're they're billy gave me a statistic that blew my mind and and maybe you could talk a little bit about this um you know a cop on average depending upon what department you are you can be in a big city or out in a rural whatever sheriffs whatever a cop on average sees about seven traumatic major traumatic things a year right mm -hmm. has, has about seven major traumas a year and i think to myself and i go back and i go man <laughs> Imagine if you're on the force for, for, for 10 years, I mean, yeah. that's a profound amount of exposure yeah. to trauma. Is yeah. there, is there anything that based on your lifetime of experience that can effectively prepare you to deal with that? I don't know, honestly, that there is a, uh, that there's, there's a magic, you know, bullet, so to speak. No, no pun intended there. I think, you know, going into the job with the expectation that, that you're going to see that is, is one thing, but there's just such a stigma amongst law enforcement officers that they don't prepare you for that, man. It's, it's not part of the vernacular to be vulnerable and to be honest and open. It's like, Hey, you're a cop, you get out there and you do it and you suck it up. And then at the end of the day, you can, you know, go to the, what do they, what do they call it? The choir, choir <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, or choir, choir practice, choir practice yeah, that's, that's at the bar, thing. right? Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and that's acceptable to, you know, to, to, you know, drown your sorrows and, and yuck, yuck it up with the guys. So in a, in a perfect world, people would recognize, you know, that, you know, it's most likely going to manifest itself in substance use, a lot of domestic violence with cops, and military combat vets, and uh, 
you know, just learning to learning to deal with it in a healthier fashion. I know that's easier said than done when you got to go back out on the streets. But I think, Dave, I think everybody should have a therapist, you know, I mean, somebody to really talk to. And in, in police departments, I know that they have debriefs on, on occasion after critical incidences. But, you know, what about a month after that critical incident? I mean, it should be an ongoing thing. And I think a lot of departments are getting better about encouraging, you know, seeking out the EAP or, or whatever, but in many departments, they still have a long way to go. You know, it's still down upon to raise your hand. It's really kind of bizarre, and, and it, it almost brings to, you know, it, it, it highlights this insane juxtaposition of, of culture, right? Is, is here, you know, you're, you're investing so much uh, sacrifice, right? Whether you're sacrificing your actual life on the line or you're sacrificing the immense amount of time required to be proficient at these professions, sacrificing time away from your families from your personal things that you like that keep you, give you that healthy spirit all the time. It's just this perpetual sacrifice, right? And yet in that sense, that, that grand sense of selflessness, we, we forget to say that we're sacrificing ourselves and that we need that replenishment. We need that, that vulnerability. We need to enhance the emotional intelligence based on, you know, this, very what I believe is a real uh, and and concentrated suppression of emotional intelligence, right? In order to yeah. get people to be able to pull a trigger, you have to have induced some some sensation of moral ambiguity, right? You have to allow people to say, "I'm doing this for the right reasons. I, I'm protecting. I'm serving. I'm protecting the country, the Constitution. So this is acceptable." Right. Yeah, and many, right. and many people are like, it's not the gunshot. It's, it's the guilt of your buddy not making it, or it's the guilt of you don't know how to fit into regular society or whatever it might be. But there is repercussions yeah. for this training. Yeah. And yet nowhere in buds. And from what I'm understanding, nowhere in police training or nowhere in firefighter school or nowhere. I, I didn't experience going through paramedic training a little bit of uh, understanding for the patient um, dealing with mental health issues in, in conjunction with treatment. Right. Um, but nowhere do they say, Hey, guess what? You're signing up for this and be, and you need to expect all of this with it. Why do you think we're so reluctant to actually tell people? Are we so afraid? I, I don't know. I think it comes, I think it comes from the, you know, the hooya kind of culture. It's like, yeah, we're in this. And if if the the military and the uh, first responder community put as much work into you know resilience training for example like what billy mazer and joe collins does you know just that basic education on here hey here's how to take care of yourself because it's an investment man i mean i don't know what the cost is to train a navy seal but i'm sure it's uh same as a police officer so let's let's protect these assets and, and you know remember that they're human and let's, i i heard let's it was shame like them. I heard it was like it was like two million dollars for just the really? basic training for a frogman, oh. right? The first four years of their lives, about two million bucks. You go over to the yeah. tier one levels that I know you've been exposed to. You know, there's a guy. You get a guy who's at Damnick, who's rocking it for ten years, and that dude's worth thirty million dollars oh. or something crazy. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure. So I do know that efforts. You know, again, Bill, Bill and Joe probably talked about this on their podcast, but 
back to your original question, I, as I think about it, you know, the more that we, like the resilience training is an awesome way to do that. You know, just that's, that's pretty basic, but very, very good intel to have. And, and to, you know, to have people just be aware that it's not a bad thing to experience emotion over this or, you know, to have some intrusive thoughts or, or increased anxiety and, and how to cap it and deal with it in a healthy way. So I know that New Jersey, I believe Billy was telling me that they just, they're the first state, I think, to implement, is it statewide, statewide. resilience training? Statewide yeah. resilience. What a, what a huge thing that is for, for, for those guys. You can't even put you can't even really put a metric on it, right? I mean, the yeah. only way we're gonna see it is is the decline in divorces, the decline in the suicides, the decline in all the all the negative aspects, alcoholism, addiction issues, all those. Um, you know, one of the one of the interesting, you know, the, there's a like we're talking about. There's it's culturally inhibitive, right? that uh, the exposure to emotions and how critical it is to be able to assess emotions. At, at what point in your career did you begin to realize, because I noticed that you had some certifications in psychiatry as well too, and, and I'm kind of yeah. wondering what was, the, the, what was the inspiration or the ignition point for you going, wow, I really need to understand what's going on chemically in someone's brain in the midst of all this too. Yeah, when, when I was still, when I was wrapping up my career, you know, I retired uh, back in 2012 out of Pearl Harbor. You know, the, all the time that I spent as a PA and even a, a hospital corpsman before that, it was all primary care medicine. So I knew that I, that I wanted to change because as I saw more and more guys coming back from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan that were just burdened with multiple, multiple problems. And many of them just, you know, over-medicated and just, you know, feeling kind of helpless, like they're not getting the appropriate help. I think that was the, that was the impetus that caused me to get my certification. Plus, another wonderful thing that happened to me in Pearl Harbor is I, is I sent myself to uh, treatment at Tripler Army Medical Center back in 2010. So I have, you know, I got 10 years sober now. And Good on you, brother. Yeah, I really relate to, to a lot of the guys, you know, I'm able to it sort of gives me more street cred, you know, when <laughs> and, hey, and I can say, hey, man, I've been there. And I just, it's just, it's interesting. I mean, the, the VA is, has been problematic for many people. Uh, so I don't know. It's just my own, my own personal way to, to, to give back and do what I can to influence uh, recovery. And then we started, you know, the program here at Sierra Tucson a couple of years ago, and it's been, it's been phenomenal. Yeah, tell me how you got involved with them, how you connected, and, and what was really, you know, why, why I mean, because obviously addiction is, is one of the most difficult things to treat out of any issue, right? I mean, addiction, alcohol yeah. abuse, right? And, and, and the, the amount of recidiv recidivism within patients coming to treatment, going out, getting addicted again, coming back, going out, is, it's, it's, a, it's a revolving door in many cases, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So what in this space, because I'm, and let me back up and I'm, and I digress a little bit here right now. What, cause when I first started to see, cause my battle lasted about three and a half years once I got out before I said, all right, I have a problem and I need to start addressing this from a, a more scientific approach, at least from psychological approach. And I started re reading everything I could on post-traumatic stress. I started reading everything I could on addiction and really began to understand, Oh, wow, this is all my behavior. I need to, 
I need to figure this out. Um, when did your treatment center say, wow, what we offer here is translatable for veterans too? Because one of the things that I always heard with, with, with vets is that when they would try and go get help, if they weren't clean or sober, they weren't able to go get the help. And I was like, wait, this is all connected. Why, yeah. why doesn't anybody see that? Yeah. Well, you remember, I, I think one of the, the uh, one of the impetuses was, you remember a few years ago with the Phoenix VA? Oh my God. Horrific. Big scandal, you know, with these fictitious waiting lists and everything. So my CEO here at the time, uh, Jamie Vink, who was an awesome lady. Uh, she's not with us anymore. But anyways, she's married to a, a guy who's a Vietnam vet. And my chief medical officer, another psychiatrist, uh, Aaron Wilson, we got together, put our heads together and said, hey, there's a real need out there. You know, these veterans are, are clearly, you know, suffering. And as magnified, you know, by the VA, not only in Phoenix, but, but nationwide. And we decided to really just start out uh, as, a, as a small program, as sort of an add-on add -on service, if you will. So since that time, uh, two years ago, we've had over 100 people come through here from all kinds of different backgrounds. No, no active duty military, but we've had a lot of veterans and, and mainly, you know, survivors of 9-11, you know, the, the Boston Marathon and a lot of cops you know, from the East Coast. And we just, yeah, we just saw that there was a need and we were able to, you know, we were able to do that and we were able to get some extra services for them here, like some extra you know, equine, for example, some extra one-on-one -on -one trauma therapies and just be in a room with other veterans and first responders. You know this, man, there's a big camaraderie thing, right? It's like, you know, you, it's hard to, it's hard to relate to a, you know, middle-aged housewife from Des Moines who's here for alcohol when you were in Afghanistan, you know doing it up. So it's just added a whole, a, just an additional layer of comfort and where people really feel real. And look, if somebody comes in here for alcohol, I mean, if you peel the layers of the onion, as we say, trauma is always the fire in the basement, right? You know, and that's the thing about Sierra that's so beautiful is we don't just do addictions. I mean, we do, we're, we're very good at trauma, mood. We even have a chronic pain here. Wow. Chronic pain. Program. Yeah. So it's just to have all the services under one roof because, you know, in the real world, your doctor doesn't talk to your physical therapist who may not talk to the orthopedic surgeon who may not talk to so-and-so. You know, we kind of operate in silos, as I say. So I guess the, what I'm trying to say is that we look at the whole person here. And uh, regardless of why any vet or first responder comes in, they're going to get a very, very thorough, you know, workup of the, the whole person, so to speak. Well, when, I, when I'm looking at the, the list of things that you have on the website, and it, it, obviously it's PTS, right? Substance, uh, depression, anxiety, chronic pain, eating disorders, personality disorders, compulsive behaviors. You know, what are, do you guys address some of the endocrine stuff that we're seeing a lot in guys? Are you addressing some of the TBI issues? Do you, are you able to function in there in those, those aspects? Yeah. yeah, we have, we have, uh, you know, we have about, I think, 400, 350 or 400 employees here. So it's a beautiful campus. It's, you know, it's open campus. It's not a lockdown. But yeah, we, whenever anybody comes in, we, everybody gets a head-to-toe physical, which doesn't always happen when you go to a regular treatment center. We do labs. We look at that endocrine stuff that Dr. Free was talking about. They get a complete psychiatric evaluation. And based upon the history, they get put into a, 
a track, so to speak, for let's say addiction. But you know, we tailor everybody's treatment treatment plan. It's not just it's not cookie cutter because a lot of people that come in, for example, first responders, guess what? They have chronic pain. You know, all those years on the job, they 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 have depression, they have trauma, they have addiction. So we kind of are able to, to handle all those things in addition to uh, you know safely detoxing people too, which is important. Huge. That's a Without huge. People don't understand yeah. the severity of that, right? Is yeah. you have a guy that's, you know, my my best friend, uh, my biggest mentor in the SEAL teams, a uh, guy who changed my life, introduced me to the joys of teaching and educating. And a guy, I, you know, one of the most important things in my life drank himself to death. And this is after we did two interventions. We sent him to two programs in Richmond, Richmond VAs. And every time, once they cleaned him up, man, his, his outpatient treatment was just abominable. And, yeah. and we couldn't get to the root cause of what Bruce's trauma, what he was dealing with. And there was nothing we could do. So when finally, you know, the last essentially, you know, six months of his life, the guy's drinking a handle of vodka a day. Mm. And, and, and my, mm. my question is, you know, people are, are really, we have incredible access to everything you can imagine from cheap heroin to opium. I had another friend of mine, another team guy bought, overdosed last September uh, from the issues he was going through. And, you know, we have all these ways we can just numb ourselves, right? Yeah. How, what happens when is, do it, do you have to clean that out first before you can start working on everything else? Or when they show up there, once you've done the psychiatric profile, can you immediately start working as long if the person's under, you know, if they're, the, if they're, their minds have been, you know, that clouded with whatever, you know, substance they're abusing. Yeah. Well, it, it, it takes time certainly because, you know, in, in psychiatry and if anybody is using substances, we can't accurately diagnose anything, right? Because, you know, how people behave when they drink or they use or whatever can result in behavior that looks like, for example, bipolar disorder or this or that. So to do any, any kind of meaningful work, you got to remove the booze, you got to remove the substance. There is a syndrome a lot of people aren't familiar with. You know, a lot of times people think that if they stop drinking on Monday, that they're going to start feeling great by Tuesday or Wednesday. But there's actually a syndrome called PAWS, you know, that's P-A-W-S, post-acute withdrawal symptoms, uh, which can linger for sometimes several weeks, sometimes several months. Wow. You know, that's basically just not feeling right, right? Because you've been scrambling your brain with substances and it, it does take time to, uh, you know, to heal that. But yeah, you got to remove the substance use before you can do any meaningful work with trauma uh, or, or anything like that. Well, let me ask you a more target specific question. One of the things that we're seeing in our community that's really kind of uh, uh, taking off is uh, trying to treat post-traumatic stress with um, everything from ketamine to ayahuasca, to plant medicines, to you name it, there are guys just swarming after this, especially because, you know, Tim Ferriss and, and, and Joe Rogan have promoted it at such a high level. And even to the fact where Tim Ferriss is, you know, he's, he's contributed $3 million of his own money for that, that new program at uh, Johns Hopkins that are, are, have started clinical tri trials at using psilocybin to help uh, interrupt, they say, 
you know, these uh, um, abnormal or however you describe, right, whatever you would say, these, uh, these inclinations to disrupt the pattern of that post-traumatic stress. Do you yeah. guys, do you look at all that stuff? Is that a feature that you're considering or where is people at with all that? You know, we don't, we don't do that here. We actually have one of our psychiatrists that works here. He's involved in research out at the University of Arizona, and he is very pro uh, MDMA and, and some of the newer treatments. I have not had any, uh, any experience with it, but I mean, the results sound like they're, you know, they're promising. I, I have had more experience seeing people use ketamine for depression, and uh, that's been beneficial in many patients, but, but, but not everybody. You know, I mean, we, we are an abstinence-based program, so part of me is like, wow, that'd be cool to, you know, if MDMA would work on some guy, but if he's an addict, you know, what's, what's going on with that? So, I mean, I, I don't know. I will tell you this, though. We get a lot of people, one of the things that we do here very well is we have a program called Prescribing with Purpose, Right. So we are expert at like removing meds. We get a lot of people that come in here with what we call polypharmacy. And, you know, you can't treat PTSD with a pill, so to speak, successfully. There are some medications that, you know, that can work and take the edge off the anxiety medications like Prozac. But we see a lot of people being prescribed benzodiazepines out in the real world. And that's Valium and Clonopin and Xanax. And, you know, all those medications work very well. As once people get going on them, they don't want to come off. And there's been more and more evidence showing that the long-term use of those meds can really be problematic with uh, cognition concerns and, and everything. So anyways, I, back to your original thing, I, I, the results sound promising on those, uh, on those newer, you know, the psychedelics, but we don't, we certainly don't do that here. Yeah. Cause one of the interesting things is, you know, is that with, with all of this new stuff, it's, it's like, I, you know, what I'm hearing in many circumstances, and I'm all about it, man. If you want to go try it and you, you feel like it's going to help you. And I, I know guys, it's been wonderful too, that it really shook and it, it, it altered their perception of reality. Just like Aldous Huxley claims it does. Right. It, you know, and then I've seen other guys, well, I'm not drinking anymore, but I'm taking acid. 10 times a day, you know, or five times right. a week. And I'm, I have my little psilocybin candy bars. I'm just chewing every day. And, right. you know, right. and it's just like, man, you're the behavior, you know, yeah, you might feel a little bit, but you're just substituting one negative behavior for the other. Right. So. Yeah. And I think if you really, when we talk about getting to the root of stuff, I mean, doing, doing the trauma work with a very skilled therapist an EMDR therapist or somatic experiencing is what we use a lot here really has, I've just seen it turn people's lives around, you know, it's being substance free, you know, clean and sober and doing the work. Well, let's uh, talk about that. Let's do, let's take a, for instance, okay. all right, let's give me, let me give you a case study. All right. Okay. All right. So you've got a guy that has just spent, um, uh, uh, 30 straight days doing overtime work on a police force in New York City from the pandemics now into, uh, uh, you know, the, the social unrest, right? They're working triple overtimes. Um, they've seen, they've been called into multiple gunshot wounds. They've, they've had their buddies get hit with bricks. Uh, one guy's got stabbed. Uh, now they're every night when they're getting off work, instead of drinking three drinks to get the, you know, get calm themselves, they're drinking a, you know, half or three fourths of a bottle. 
they're fighting with their wives, they're, they're, they can't in, engage with their kids on an emotional level that's equitable to what the kid needs, the child needs. What do you do when that person shows up and how do you start digging in? First thing we do is, you know, for any kind of any kind of trauma symptoms, you have to provide a place of safety for somebody, right? So you're not gonna you got to remove them from that environment or you know whoever whatever the the distressing environment is. Safety and stabilization is the, is the number one thing. So coming here or to a facility where he's not facing all that stuff and removing the substances is step one. And uh, you know, there are various different types of trauma therapies out there. You, you've probably heard of EMDR, somatic experiencing. They're, they're both uh, very different, but the goal is, you know, to, is to get to the root of the trauma. So you take your average first responder, for example, like that guy you just gave as an example, right? So when he's on the job, he's hypervigilant. He's got to have his head on a swivel. And then typically what happens when those guys get home is they numb out. It's the opposite. They'll sit down on the couch with a beer with a remote control in their hand. And if uh, little Johnny wants a hug or a kiss, they get really snappy with them and say, leave me alone or to the spouse. So that's a, you know, there's a, there's a guy named uh, Kevin Gilmartin who's, who's written an excellent book called emotional survival for law enforcement. And he talks about that, that, that roller coaster of being way up and then being way down. So anyways, the first thing is to provide a safe, a safe place for somebody and get them, get them detoxed safely. And you can do a really good psychiatric evaluation on them and figure, you know, where the, uh, the issues are that, that start to need to be addressed. And what I wish we had everybody here that, you know, for a minimum of six weeks or eight weeks, but the reality is most people come into treatment for 30 days and we, I feel like we can barely scrape the surface in that amount of time. Well, all right. Know? This is, this is my biggest thing, Bill, right here. This is, this is where I, I, my pop tops. I'm like, what the hell can you get done in 30 days, right? Especially when you're dealing with all of these issues that are, are, have shaped, reshaped who you are, who your identity is, all your behaviors, your, all your thinking, everything has changed because of all of these events. 30 days yeah. is insanity to me. How, yeah. come, how come people, departments, uh, military, VAs, how come there aren't more 90-day programs? Good question. You know, I'm sure a lot of it has to do with, with money, right? I mean, a lot of the people that come into treatment, they're dependent upon insurance. And, you know, insurance companies uh, can be difficult. You know, some are easy to deal with than others. But I feel like if we get anybody in here for like 28 days out on insurance, then we're doing really well. So what we do, recognizing that, is we do as much as we can, but we also have a department here that sets up their aftercare plan. So, you know, nobody ever should just go into treatment and then say, okay, I'm good, and, and go back. <laughs> we, we like to see people, you know, go to step-down programs like partial hospitalization programs or IOP. Sometimes people that repeatedly struggle with substances, we recommend sober living, you know, for several months, sometimes a year. But yeah, you're right. You're right, Rudd. I mean, 30 days is barely enough to, to scrape the surface. So we, we certainly do what we can. And uh, I have seen a lot of people make incredible progress, though. I mean, nobody leaves any treatment center fixed, so to speak. But people can do some, a lot of good work while we have them. 
All right. Now, I know this goes against all your Hippocratic oath and everything that you firmly believe, but I got to push you a little bit, Bill, because you are so smart, right? And you've seen it so much. Is what are the what are the most common things that occur? People come in, they 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 they're invested in the treatment, they do the work, they're really putting out, they're allowing the vulnerability, they're digging into the past, they're allowing those memories to come back to the surface. They're talking about it. They're not restraining or withholding or anything, man. They're full tilt. 30 days, insurance runs out. They go back. What is a a what are some of the environmental factors that you have seen that cause relapse that cause uh people to just regress and go right back to those same behaviors again i think some people come from difficult you know domestic situations like they might have to go back home to a spouse that likes to drink or use and that's that's really tough you know to be clean and sober when your significant other is doing that the other thing with regards to first responders uh a lot of those guys have to go right back to work you know, and that's, I mean, that's really tough to come here and do all this great work and then they have to go back into the same environment. So it depends upon the department that we've had more than a few uh, cops come through here that came from departments that were large enough where they were able to transfer to other units uh, with, you know, not being on the street, for example, or, you know, maybe administrative tasks. But yeah, I would say returning home to, uh, to unsafe environments is probably the number one thing. And one of the things we, we teach people here is, you know, your sobriety has to come first. You know, if, you're, if your spouse is still drinking, that, you know, that sucks. Uh, maybe you need to do a trial, you know, separation or live somewhere else for a little while. Uh, people learn to set boundaries here also about what they're willing to put up with when they return home, right? I mean, we've seen marriages sometimes, uh, you know, go through some pretty, pretty rough patches uh, because of the, you know, the ongoing problems in the house, or it could be domestic violence, for example, married to somebody who, you know, who's emotionally unstable and violent. I mean, how do you heal in that environment? So those are all the factors that we look at, you know, when we set up aftercare uh, programs and we really just try to learn, you know, teach people how to advocate for themselves to, you know, to identify what they need to be safe. Because if you don't have that, that fundamental safety and stabilization, that's just not gonna, that's not a good way to start your sobriety or your recovery. Uh, thank you for that, for that great answer. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the EMDR and, and why are people so excited about this form of treatment? What are they seeing from a, a physiological level as it relates to, you know, how it translates into behavior? I can speak very superficially about EMDR. <laughs> I had it when I, when I was still in the Navy in San Diego, but the lady that... Uh, there is a, gosh, she found it. I cannot recall her name, unfortunately. But anyways, it was, it was, she discovered that rapid eye movement. So first of all, EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing. So there is something about sitting with a patient, with the EMDR therapist, where your eyes, when this first started, you would sit across from somebody, she would hold her fingers up like, you know, a finger, and you would watch She'd move her finger very rapidly back and forth and you would follow it with your eyes that, you know, with, with uh, your gaze would follow her finger. Now we have more, you know, we have more advanced things like they have machines and light boxes, but there is something about that eye movement, which allows people to open up and access 
those traumatic memories. Hmm. Now, I'm really overdoing this. I just want to be clear on that. But I'm telling you, it's uh, it is a we have some of the best EMDR therapists ever here, and I've seen them. You know, I always joke that they have uh, you know they they have their magic mojo and they they do wonders with people. So, uh, well, I appreciate that explanation, yeah. and 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 you know, there, I also see that you've got transcranial magnetic stimulation. You've yeah. got the resilience, the uh, psychoeducational groups, therapeutic massage, acupuncture, and all that. Um, but I, in all of these things, and you've said so yourself, is that you got to peel that onion. You got to get down to the root trauma of what's causing all of it what how 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 is the what is what have you guys find are some of the better approaches when addressing people that have 20 years of sustained combat when people have 20 years on a on on a special victims unit right where you're seeing children molested yeah. and pedophiles running rampant for 20 straight years or whatever it is i know they 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 transition out of a, a requirement you can't stay there that long but when you're when you're seeing this, is there still deeper trauma that 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 you still have to explore within their own childhoods, their own perception of right and wrong? What what are you? What are some of the things that you you're, you need to do with all of that? Yeah, you know that reminds me. I I had a a gentleman in here. He was a he was a cop from back east, probably about a year and a half ago. And he had had a lot of trauma from being a cop. He was a cop for like 25 or 30 years. But you know, when he, when he came here and he sobered up and we really started exploring his psychosocial history, he had so much developmental trauma. And developmental trauma is starting at a young age, right? When you're, we're supposed to form those bonds of safety, like with our parents, you know, they're our caregivers. His father was so violent that he actually made him he chose, the, the cop chose to sleep on the front lawn in the summertime. So he didn't even want to begin to process his, the numerous traumas he'd had from being a police officer. Because when you get down to it, he was still a little boy, right? He was still that little kid that was looking to dad and mom to protect him. But dad was a raging alcoholic who was violent and mom was powerless to protect him. So the, here's the good thing. There's, there's some people experience so much trauma during their lives that you don't have to pick every single trauma out during your life in order to heal. There's a, there's a saying called the, the trickle down effect. And they, you know, for example, if you start working on a target in EMDR, say in his case, you know, childhood trauma, the healing from that has a tendency to sort of roll down and also positively affect the other traumas that you have in your life. Basically, what we're really trying to do is help people learn to reprogram their nervous system, right? Because we have the fight or flight, you know, which in a perfect world, we would just need it on occasion. And then you have the opposite of that, which is what we call hypoarousal. In other words, it's just not having fight or flight. It's like you feel numb and detached. So we want to get people to operate in that zone in the middle. We call that the zone, the window of tolerance, you know, where you know, rest and digest, right? The parasympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if that, that answered your question, but. Uh, no, it does. And, and, and what I think, you know, I think that's a very healthy thing for people to process that, Hey, you don't have to eat the whole elephant when you show up at one time. Right. Right. 
Exactly. That, that you can address one of these things, one of those moments from your childhood and really begin to understand. I think, you know, obviously a big component is, is who bears the responsibility of the, of the trauma, right? And being able to mm-hmm. f- forgive yourself saying this was not your fault. Exactly. Right. And, and exactly. And, and we're seeing that as, as a very difficult thing, especially with first responders who are taught, right? From, from day one, I walked through those doors at the Philip H. Bucklew Center, man. It was what, how you are respected is determinant on how much you're willing to give your swim buddy. You are yeah. respected by how much you're willing to do to make the platoon better to make the team better, to make the teams mm-hmm. better. That's how we yeah. are going to govern you, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, you have that sensation of, man, this is my burden. It's on me. I need to figure this out. It's my responsibility, All you know. And when you realize you can't handle it, man, that shame over, overwhelms guys. Yeah. And so, you know, I really find it amazing that, you know, you can bring a guy like what you just described with 25 years and just this, you know, just systemic abuse he experienced as a child and get them to be reflective and open and, and just willing to just talk about it at a bare minimum. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's, uh, it's, it was difficult for him because he, uh, just being able to acknowledge that, you know, that his dad was, you know, his dad was not the dad that his friends had, you know, he, uh, uh, very, very tearful, very upset as he, as he did this work as, as a lot of people are, but yeah, shame is, a it's a whole nother topic on that. I know that you're aware of Brene Brown and, you know, she's done a big talk on Netflix and it's, uh, lots of, lots of discussion around that, but I think we see it more in our, in our population because we just have this thing where we're supposed to be invincible, you know? And uh, we're not invincible. You know, we need to, a lot of people that come into treatment really discover who they really are, right? It's like, we have a tendency to over-identify, right? Like, you know, you were, you were a Navy SEAL, or I'm a cop, or I'm a retired Naval officer. There's a whole lot more to people than, you know, what their occupation is, so. Well, it's funny, it's funny that you just bring that up. Just before we hopped on, I was just scrolling through my feed, and, you know, I had posted a black square when everybody posted a black square last week. Right. And, or, or two weeks ago. And, and, and really I did it uh, not knowing what the overall intention, I was just like, all right, it's in recognition of the pain uh, that the country is experiencing that in particular African-Americans are experiencing. I'm supportive of that. I want to acknowledge that I'm on board. I lost 400 followers that day alone and oh, just, no. and, and just had a guy get on my feet today and said, oh, you drank the Kool-Aid. And, you know, my immediate response is I'm going to get on there and I'm going to blast this guy and say, you know, from one post, you're going you're gonna to assume you know the totality and understand the totality of, of my mind. You're an idiot just, yeah. for, just for presuming that. But, again, it doesn't yeah. do any good. So, you know, when you get – when people – when these guys – when people are – women, men, first responders, the, the, the people you're treating in the Red, White, and Blue program, they're coming in and they have a host of all these things. And obviously they sent you, you, you know, questionnaires so you have some understanding of what you're going to face. Do you 
yourself, do you get nervous with the amount of stuff that's coming at you with all these people? Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, it's, you know, I have a friend of mine, for example, that leaves work every day and will like sort of make movements to shake, shake the stuff off. You know, I wish I, your audience could see this, but yeah, I, I really have to, you know, I have to manage my expectations. I mean, I want to help everybody that comes in our doors, but people are complicated, you know, and people are complicated. So you have somebody who comes in, it's an alcoholic and dependent, you know, chronic pain and bipolar disorder. And oh, by the way, they have horrific trauma. It's like, oh my gosh, where do you, where do you begin? Right. But you know, it begins with sobriety and it begins with simply having an honest conversation and asking what the treatment goals are, you know, that for that person, it's like, what do you want to address? They may have horrific trauma, but they may not particularly be distressed by it right now for, for whatever reason. So, you know, we sort of set the, you know, set the, the top three, the top four of what we can do. And, and we just go from there and we provide them a very supportive environment. You know, each, each person has a treatment team and, you know, we shepherd them through the, through the process, but yeah, it definitely can become overwhelming. How do you, how do you adjust, uh, um, how do you uh, get a person in treatment there? How do you get them to, especially us again, you know, I'm trying to keep it in this framework where, where, you know, the expectate or the, the metrics of success are very clearly defined in our world, right? Yeah. Right? And yeah. In, in, in the SEAL teams, can you go overseas and pull a trigger when you need to pull a trigger, right? And in policing, uh, can you be in an incredibly intense, complicated situation and, and de-escalate and, and control it so it doesn't become you know, a traumatic event for everybody involved, right? Do you have that capability? You know, so we have these very distinct uh, measurements of success. Obviously, when you're dealing with all of these, these challenges, mental health challenges, physical challenges, emotional, you show up. How do you get people to temper their metrics of success? How do you get them to say, hey, you've been a high achiever, you've, you've achieved some of the most difficult stuff in the world, you've been in the most difficult environments, but we can't look at it like that. You need to start looking down here. How, how do you go about, what do you say to somebody in that context? How do you get them to start thinking differently? You know, the first thing I say to my patients in the red, white, and blue program when I first meet them is, hey, you're off duty, man, okay? <laughs> a lot of them, a lot of them just look at me like they never heard that before. So it's like, you're off duty. You're, you're not a cop here. You're not a, you're not a seal or, you know, Marine recon guy. You are off duty. That really has a tendency to kind of put people at ease. And, and I let them know, look, you're, our, our definition of success is different than your definition of success. Right. So the vast majority of people that come here are able to, you know, integrate that and, and look at the bigger picture. You know, it's just, yeah, we get some high, strong, high, strong people and it can take, you know, sometimes a little bit of, a little bit of time to get people to sort of amp down. What, what are some interesting uh, things that you've really seen to, to that help people be able to turn the light switch off? So, and I, and I've got an interesting story. So I was going through training a long time ago and I had, we were going through pool comp and, and I'd finished early. We had somebody, you know, you know, go through a, a an AG or an AGE uh, and we, 
and but I had finished, right? So that night I went out and I run into all the instructors in a bar in Pacific Beach and I'm like, uh-oh, music stops. And then I say, drinks are on <laughs> me. And then we we're all good, right? But yeah. at that, one of those conversations, I had this beautiful conversation with a guy named Keith Kimura, who was a study, ended up dying a couple months later in a training accident. And then another friend of mine, Brian, who, and I remember sitting with him and I was like, you know, Brian had been in 15 years. I think Keith was at like 10 years. And I look at him and I go, gentlemen, because this was a big concern I'd had. And this was one of the main reasons I wanted to be a medic. I wanted to have the duality in place. One, I was totally able and capable of taking life, but I also could save a life. And I thought that would help my mental health, right? Was I wrong? But, um, but I asked him, I go, what's the greatest thing you could share with me right now about starting this process? And, and Brian looks at me straight off. He goes, learn how to turn it off and turn it on. And I go, great. How do you do that? And he goes, I'm 15 years in. I have no idea. Yeah. So how do you, how do you teach that? And then, you know, it's one thing to be in at Sierra Tucson, greeted by you, this welcoming, loving human being who really wants their help and say, man, you're off duty. But then they leave 30 days and they go back home and it's boom, switches right back on. What do you do? I think, I think a lot of it really is, is education. I mean, people really need to understand that trauma symptoms are, uh, you know, they manifest in symptoms, not memories, right? So a lot, of the, a lot of the things, that, and that's key to understand that, right? It's educating people about the nervous system. Like, look, this is what happens when you're in the sympathetic, right? You know, fight or flight. And this is what happens, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, when you're under hypo arousal, the example I always give is like, you can Google this, Google like zebra being chased by a lion or something like that, right? <laughs> the way around, right? So what you will frequently see is when animals uh, are, for, are away from their captors and they know that they're safe, you will sit there and you can sit and watch and they will visibly shake. They have that discharge, right? We call that an emotional discharge. Well, we don't do that as humans. We, we hold on to that shit. We keep it in our bodies. Now, I've seen it in some people in therapy where they visibly will start shaking. And, you know, it is possible to have that, you know, that sympathetic discharge. But I think, you know, I think a lot of it is just education and, and you know, recognizing, educating people that they have a, they have a choice and how they act. You know, we, we have a saying here, act, don't react, you know, and just increased, increased self-awareness, I, I think, is key. Interesting. You know, that's a huge, you know, huge piece of it. It's just we, so many of us, we get used to just kind of being automatons during the day and we go through the motions and, Hey, there's a bad guy. I'm going to go chase him. And, or, you know, you, when you're on an op after, after a bad guy. So education around the, the nervous system and teaching them also about neuroplasticity. You know, we do have the power to rewire our brains. We're not, we're not stuck, you know, in with those thought patterns. And that's where, you know, the mindfulness meditation comes in uh, and the various other things that we do. Well, that was the thing. When I started doing my in-depth research on fear, right, and, and, and that's one of the core uh, components of frog logic and frog logic training is I first get people to understand fear, where it comes from, how they learn it, and then how they continue on and build on it and how it affects people. And, you know, one of the books I got into is a book, uh, from Martin Seligman, and it was called Positive Neuroscience. And it had all these wonderful studies about uh, the amygdala is actually in that 
and that parasympathetic state actually cr can induce a, a completely a, a complete sensation of elation right when you're mm -hmm. at a big concert um you know whether you you know you're at the big u2 concert and everybody's screaming where the streets have no names you feel <laughs> that flow state come over you right yeah and and so it's it's trying to figure out how to how to like you said how to put that 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 brain in the right state so then you can create that those neuro neuro pathways exactly and, and you're not you're not de destined to live in the state you can evolve that well not out of it completely I, i'm not sure if that's i guess you guys i don't know can you can you evolve out of this completely is there a space that you've witnessed and people where they can completely manage process and and cope and deal with their uh, all their traumas without having it be a, an issue for them in the rest of their lives i've seen just from you know some just from some follow-up conversations i've had from some of the red white and blue guys I, I would say yes you know the the people that take their recovery super seriously get sober and uh yeah and continue to practice that and and do their aftercare plan absolutely can heal it's, it's interesting because, you know, when you talk about like the parts of the brain, right, we have the prefrontal cortex, right? That's the emotional uh, thought center. And then you have, you know, that's what, that's what prevents you and me from, you know, walk, you know, stepping in front of a moving vehicle, right? And then you have something called the anterior uh, cingulate cortex, and that's what we call the emotional regulation center. And then you have the amygdala, right? The amygdala is the fire alarm. So what happens for most people in trauma you have your prefrontal cortex that's underactivated, right? Your anterior cingulate cortex is also underactivated. And then you have your amygdala that's on overdrive. It's like having a broken thermostat, if that makes sense. And that, that's really the state that many people present to us. And so absolutely, we can, yeah, those, those things can be taught. And, you know, that comes down to neuroplasticity. Sometimes TMS, which you mentioned earlier. And again, coming down to just being in a safe place and especially in the red, white, and blue, where you know people really connect and feel that they can really open up. Let's talk and, about that. Uh, let's talk about the sessions. All right, uh, I'm a guy. I come in. I've been in process. Uh, I've gone through all my uh, genetic stuff. I've gone done the psychiatric thing. Uh, now I'm I'm showing up at my first group session. Who am I going to be surrounded by, and what does that session look like? Is it, is it, is everybody hears sessions, right? And it's everything they've seen on TV. It's what they've seen in AA. It's all this stuff. So, you know, try and paint a picture for the person who's listening, debating on whether to get down there. Yeah. So you, you come, you come to Sierra Tucson. We're an open campus. We look kind of like a, like a community college might look or something. It's again, it's spread out pool exercise area. We have men's lodge, women's lodge, and we have a co-ed lodge. But anybody, everybody that comes in here is assigned to a primary therapist, right? So this is your main therapist, so to speak, that you're going to be in a process group with four times a week. Plus, you will see that therapist for a one-on-one. -on -one. They will see me if they're assigned to me. I'm the medication management guy, so I see them once or sometimes twice a week. So a lot now for the red, white, and blue, we do extra stuff outside of that right? So for example, we've had some people that have come in that have had such bad trauma, they don't even feel comfortable sharing it in their regular process group, right? But when they come into the small groups that we have with red, white, and blue, it's like you're amongst your brothers and your sisters. 
something about it rut where people's they're they just open up and they talk and they cry and they scream and they get it out you know so but anyways anybody that comes in here we it's highly structured you have all kinds of different treatments going on you have your process group and you know body massage you have acupuncture you have emdr uh, we have a chiropractor here. We have a chronic pain doctor. We have exercise time, three meals a day. We have AA, uh, refuge recovery. Everybody's treatment plan is a little bit different, but right. you do stay busy throughout the day. So I guess what, what we offer with the red, white, and blue is some extra benefits with the camaraderie and the safety, right? Because the groups are typically small, less than seven or eight people. But we also get them some extra recreation therapy with uh, – they get to do cool stuff in the pool and out on the track. So it's, it's more of a team building uh, type environment for the red, white, and blue guys. Well, it's interesting, man. You know, so often, you know, vulnerability is, 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 is looked down upon in our, our worlds. Right. And, but yet we all acknowledge the reason why we do it. Right. The real core root reason is, is we did it for our brothers. We did it for our teammates. We do it for the people that are on the line with us. And, and I, I just have story after story after story about guys going through other facilities and they're by themselves or they're next to some 21 year old kid who can't finish college because he's addicted to pills or whatever. Not yeah. that they don't have any big problems or whatever, but man, how am I supposed to talk about my best friend turning to pink mist and his brains covering my face when you know in front of this person so you know i i think you're right man you know be those vulnerable moments and 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 i and i you know when you look at how world war ii veterans coped in korea right what they had the they had the vfw they had american legions they leave their house after the kids were bed they go down there they get drunk they tell war stories and they'd be all right right <laughs> Well, we now know that the alcoholism and the drugs are a really bad thing. And so let's get rid of those. But we haven't created these spaces. Yeah. We, the, the spaces are not there. There's no place for me in Boca Raton, Florida to go and, and, and have that space of vulnerability and support and all that. There's no modern American legion minus the booze and the drugs, right? Yeah, yeah. Why do you think that is? You know, I, I, I don't know, Rut. It's a good question. I, and it's sad because a lot of those guys are probably most of the guys from World War II, Korea, even Vietnam. Well, probably less so in Vietnam, but those guys suffered in silence. They didn't talk about it. It was just truly back then you did not talk about it, even to their wives. You know, my, uh, my wife's uncle recently died, and he was a survivor of the Chosen Reservoir. Oh. And, and a guy was like 95 years old, and he still had – horrific nightmares and he never wanted to talk about it except they would, he would go to his reunion once a year and you know they'd get together and and uh you know do their their bonding so i i don't know i think the uh we still have the vfw a lot of guys migrate to that unfortunately guys descend into bad drinking patterns and but i wish we had a i wish we had sort of a centralized place in each major town sort of a mini red white and blue where guys could really go talk about their stuff there is a, a place in Tucson, the Tucson Veterans Center, that I know a lot of guys go to. And uh, some guys find that beneficial, but I think that's the exception and not the rule. Oh, I, I, you know, I, I, 
when I first started recognizing, all right, the, I, I need to give back, right? I need to, I need to help my buddies that are getting out, they're struggling. So I just went on. If, if there was a charity, I wanted to work with it. And I worked with some really great charities doing great thing with Sal, Special Operations Wounded Warrior. I worked with the Lone Survivor Foundation. I worked with Outward Bounds Veterans Programs. I worked with uh, Charlie Daniels, the Journey Home Project. I worked with all of them. And then I kept wow. recognizing that, man, there's, there's some major components missing in all these things, right? Yeah. Nobody's yeah. being honest about the addiction issues. Nobody's being honest because everybody's going to these things and everybody's still drinking or some of them were dealing with it, you know, but, but man, you know, and, and, and that's when I, I, at the same kind of coincidentally, and this was all kind of happened in confluence with Ruth's death, right? And then a month later, another buddy of mine went through a horrific episode and, and tried to get him help and, you know, got him to a great facility and two days later walks out, right, right, right back at it. And so I, I'm saying to myself, man, where is the program? Where yeah. is the place that we can send people where they can get in there and it's this comprehensive approach where they also feel this grand sensation of camaraderie? where they are safe. Nobody's going to judge them. Because I'll tell you this, and, and I know I'm just rambling right now, but hopefully you're tracking. But one of the things that is the most disturbing aspect, I think, and what prevents guys from going and seeking, or women, seeking the help in these situations is that they deminimize, they minimize, I should say, they minimize in their mind the significance of the actions that they took, that took place in, Right. Oh, mm -hmm. I don't have a Chosan Reservoir experience. I don't. I shouldn't go get treatment. Yeah. I, I I've only been on the force for six months. I shouldn't get treatment. I I I've only worked in neonatal care mm. for ten years. I don't deserve treatment. Yeah, we do. We hear that all the time. And you know what? I, I one of my favorite little trite sayings is comparison is the thief of great joy. Oh God, that's there's, beautiful. There's, there's always going to be somebody out there that has it worse and somebody that has it, well, I don't say, or, or better. I say that in quotation marks. And we, we, we spend a lot of time talking about that, that you don't have to, uh, please don't compare yourself to other people's trauma, you know, because it's just, it's not healthy. Uh, we, we normalize it, you know, because we always, for example, I'm going to be going to this program later in the year called Save a Warrior. I don't know if you've, you've heard of them, but not yet. I got accepted into it, right? And when I was going through it, the, I told the guy, I said, listen, I don't want to take some guy's seat who, who needs it worse than I do. And the guy on the other end just laughed and says, we hear that all the time. So just a really, you don't have to, you don't have to minimize your symptoms. It's all just, it comes back to the destigmatization and encouraging people and, and giving them, you know, giving them kudos that they had the, you know, they had the courage to speak up. Uh, if I were, if I were to make you now the commanding officer of, of any program, ranger school, buds, selection, diver school, whatever, what, Intel, I don't care. You're now the new commanding officer. You can adjust training every way you, any way you can police academy, firefight. Anyway, what is the program that you put in to help better prepare guys for the effects of their job in the future? You know, I, I'll tell you, I think, I think the gold standard 
program that I would do is the, it's the resilience program that Billy Mazur and Joe Collins does as part of the FBI National Academy Associates. Uh, they, I know, took borrowed some of that, some elements of that from the Air Force, I believe. Mm-hmm. I don't know complete history, but man, I got to go to their course a couple of years ago in Chicago. And I sat in the room with probably 30 cops, active cops, and I was just blown away. A lot of this stuff I knew just working in mental health, but some of it I didn't. But the people that were in that room were blown away by the skills that they learned about how to, you know, put your hand, you know, just reach out to your fellow, your fellow cops and help them out and, and how to stay healthy. I mean, I think that resiliency training is huge. It doesn't mean that you're going to be impervious to trauma. But just having that knowledge and sort of normalizing that, you know, you may have some of these symptoms, I think would go a long way. And also, if I were the commanding officer, I would have a, uh, I would have a single point of contact for a phone number for people to call if they needed to talk to somebody confidential, confidentially. A lot of the, uh, the departments out there have sort of convoluted different departments that don't always talk to each other, especially with cops. They're, they're terrified that their weapon is going to be taken away from them. So I think everybody needs a safe, truly safe place that they can go and get stuff off their chest and use that person as a conduit to see if they need further treatment or not. I, I think everybody in the country needs that right now, frankly. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. So, so how, how do we, what is, how do we start, you know, what are, what, how do we start convincing, right? The people that are making the decisions at, at, the, at the highest levels in, in all of these areas, right? All of special operations, military, all, first, you name it, all these people. How do we begin to convince them, hey, listen, if you don't, if you want to continue producing or, or, or also the biggest thing I'm worried about, and I think a lot of other people are expressing this now, with the amount of issues that operators deal with or cops are dealing with right now, nobody's going to want to join and cert and do these unless there's some type right. of historical legacy involved. There's an obligation, maybe at a mentor that was a cop or whatever it might be, you know, that that's the assimilation is normally happens through those men, but there's still a lot of other people like, man, no, I want, I want to do my duty. I want to serve. <laughs> How do we say, to all of them, you know, it's time to implement these things. We need to spend more money and put all of these programs in in all over the place. How does that dialogue begin? I think, first of all, I mean, obviously you got to have buy-in at the upper levels, but you know, when you were talking about that, it reminded me, I remember when I was, you know, stationed in Hawaii and I was at the Marine Corps base and you'd see posters all over, you know, from the commandant saying, PTS, you know, PTSD is a real thing. Don't be afraid to ask help. Right. That's great that you have that. And you have the chief of naval operations saying that. But you know what? One of my Marines told me when he came and saw me for, for a trauma-related thing, he said that his gunny told him that if he went and sought help, he was going to get his ass kicked and be given, you know, the worst duty ever. So, you know, you can have all the upper echelon, you know, talking and saying, hey, this is great. But you need to have it really at the deck plate level. Where, you know, the, for example, the Marines, you know, they're very, they're more uh, leadership oriented, I think, than, than what I went through anyways in the Navy. But you have like E2s and E3s that are in charge of things and people in the Marines, right? So, you know, getting down to the lowest level to have that buy-in, I think, from the deck plate leaders is just as important as the chief of police or, of whatever. 
Well, it's funny in our world, you know, you, you went to a, 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 a seal reunion pre nine 11 and everybody's bowed up everybody, you know, drinking hard and Hey, what's up, man. And now you go to one of these things post nine 11. And I always found it weird how the Vietnam guys kind of only stayed in their little clusters and uh, yeah. you know, the world war two guys just kind of laughed at the rest of us. Right. And, and, and then now though, after 20 years of sustained combat, man, it's, it's an, I love you fest. It's yeah. uh, Hey, how are you? How are you doing? Or, you know, are, how, how's it going? Or, you know, are you, you know, you, you okay right now? And, and man, I, you know, I can't even tell you, I, I often, a lot of times I'll use my social media um, in an artistic fashion to, to bring br- greater awareness to the depths of these issues, right? So I'll write poetry or I'll do a post about uh, the, the contemplation of suicide or whatever, whatever heavier issues there are. And I immediately, I, you know, I'm getting, I get pinged the 20 texts. Hey, Rut, you all right, buddy? You know, and, and, and it's, <laughs> it, it's happening. It's starting, but still the stigmatism I think is still prevalent, man. Yeah. How do we begin to chip away at those stigmatisms? You know, it's, you're talking about this, that seal reunion. I, I got to go to one of those about three years ago in Virginia beach with a friend of mine. That was, it was, it was a lot of fun, but I, I saw that your, your observations too, you know, I think it's important to remember that we look, we're biologically hardwired to be social creatures. So, you know, your, your buds, you know, at the deck plate level, they know that you're there for them. And you know, the, the education that you're doing, I mean, I don't know other than just being there and that camaraderie piece for others and doing what you can at your organization to, you know, to work for better access to care. I mean, it's, it seems like, you know, Sisyphus, right. That, that Greek Hmm. guy, the, the rock it seems like it's a very very slow process but i think inroads are being made with regards to this and we just we just have to live it right and show what recovery is there's a lot of guys out there and gals that are terrified to give up drinking for example because that's all they know so you know talking about the wonders of recovery and what it's like to be you know sober and just you know, people, people watch us too. Like they probably, you know, look and say, Hey, look at Rudd. You know, he's, you know, he's sober. He's, he's, he's having a good time. He's not hammered. Uh, I think living the, the wellness model and just being open and available for our, for our friends and family is the biggest thing. It is. It really is to just, to be able to be okay with not being okay. Yeah. <laughs> that is, yeah. It's not a defining characteristic that impedes all success unless it is, unless it's gotten away from you. And I, and I, mm-hmm. and, and as long as, you know, cause here's what the, the great irony is. And, and at least in, in my opinion is, you know, in, in our program, they teach you, you can't do anything alone. Yeah. I mean, it's the, mo- it's the defining characteristic of seal team, Right of yeah, SWAT right. units, of who, you, you don't do it alone. But yet in the most debilitating facets of our life, we're so afraid to seek help that we try and do it alone with all these negative, easy outs for us. And, and it's, just, yeah. it's just scary to me that that is perpetuating. It's continuing. Even with yeah. now 20 years of exaggerated exposure and this newfound 
understanding of all of whatever operator, you know, all the totality of operator syndrome and, and everything else everybody else deals with. That it's just, it's, it's remarkable to me that there isn't a, a, a red, white, and blue program in every town, in every, <laughs> in every city yeah, in the right. country. Right, right. I just, I think that, uh, you know, every, I think most people are aware of like the national suicide hotline. Most vets can, you know, have the number memorized for the, for the same thing. But ultimately, I think uh, somehow providing an easier, an easier way to get the treatment is also, is also really important because, you know, the VA is, can certainly be, I think it is a, a bureaucracy and it can seem overwhelming, but just having, it's amazing. Like when people in the recovery community, for example, in AA, like when you get a sponsor, you have somebody's phone number that you can call anytime, day or night. And I can't tell you how many people I've seen that have come in to treatment that didn't utilize that phone number. We, we jokingly say that we talk about the 10,000 pound phone, right? And fundamentally know like what we should do, but there's just something inherent in, in human nature that, that we just want to do it on our own, right? So I think reinforcing the, the team concept, I mean, there's obviously a lot to that. And that's, I think, I know that's what we do so well here is nobody does anything alone here. You have a team of people working with you and people just sense that you genuinely care, you know? So I'm glad that you're, you're out there and your, your buddies are keeping, keeping an eye on you when you post sentimental things all <laughs> Okay, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've got a great tribe, man. I'm really blessed. Uh, some guys that have all been through some very significant things and we've all bonded together because we realize we can't do it alone. And, yeah, and I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for meeting you too, Bill. I think what you guys are doing and in, in combining the addiction issues with the, all the other stuff and, and this holistic approach to, to work with these individuals who desperately need help. Cause it's not like, I don't know anybody that's like, yeah, man, I love being in this state. <laughs> you, right, you know, right. I mean, nobody, nobody wants it. Nobody wants to be there. They're just, they don't know the pathway out. They've never been shown. Mm -hmm. and, and the big analogy mm -hmm. I use, if, if you show somebody how to walk a thousand miles into the woods, you know, unless you mark that path, man, you, you, you got to walk a thousand miles out. And yeah. I, I think we're doing a, uh, we're doing a better job now, but we need to do a, a hell of a lot more. And that's what, yeah. you what yeah. could you um, describe how people get in touch with you? Can you describe uh, where they go on the website and how, what the process looks like a little bit? Yeah, you could, anybody could always go to the Sierra Tucson website, you know, at sierratucson.com. And then if you look at, I think it's under programs, you can scroll down and you can see the red, white, and blue program. It's got, it's got uh, my bio on there. Uh, there's a toll-free number that people can call day or night. And once we have somebody that calls and makes inquiries about my program, I always reach out to them personally. And, and you know, I'm able to personalize it a little bit more and answer, answer their questions. And, and let them know that no, our intent is not to medicate you heavily with psychiatric medications and be a zombie. I mean, this is really a, it's a huge wellness center more than anything. You know, if it, I think there's a stigma with most treatment centers uh, in and of itself, but this is a place to get healthy and uh, it, it can just really be life-changing. So yeah, the, the website, SierraTucson.com will, will get you in touch with me. Awesome. Well, Bill, I, I, I just... There aren't words to efficiently describe my gratitude that you're out there doing what you're doing. 
uh, and that you're helping so many human beings. And, and I just, uh, man, I don't think people really understand how difficult it is to actually try and help people in these ways. Because uh, unfortunately, we are complex, ultra complex, and we don't always like to take the help. Uh, yeah. uh, so there is a, an immense amount of frustration that goes on when you think you've gotten to somebody and you haven't. Um, yeah. But thank you for staying in the fight, Bill. I just, I can't, I can't thank you enough, buddy. I really appreciate hey, it. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks for what you do. And there's a good world in recovery. You know, if anybody out there is, is hurting, there really is. I know it's scary to take that step, but uh, we're, we're standing by for anybody that needs help. So thank you, Rut, for your time. I really appreciate it. And I, I like listening to your podcast as well. I keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. God bless you. Take care. See ya.